sorry, chapter 13, verses 12 to 17. After he had washed their feet and put on his robe and had returned to the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. So if I, your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who have sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Uh, it turns out, some of you know this about me already, um, I'm not actually the first Anglican minister in my family. Uh, my dad got there before me, some years before me, and before I was even kind of here. Um, Dad's been an Anglican minister for some time. Uh, and some of my favourite memories, actually, of my dad are, are related to church, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, as a pastor's kid. Um, particularly, uh, he and I used to often, when I was a, a teenager, after the evening service had finished, uh, kind of just hang around to do a little bit more pack-up together and put some music on and just enjoy uh, talking to each other and listening to some music together as we finished putting things away. Uh, of course, not everything about having a pastor for a dad is good. Uh, I know this for a fact. It you know, terrifies me as a father of two children now, but that's a story for another time. Uh, there are moments, uh, of course, where you uh, notice that the thing that your dad is just about to say aloud is going to be a story about you in a sermon, and not always in a good way. Uh, but there's one particular moment of uh, it kind of not being so great to be a, a pastor's kid that really has stuck in my memory, so let me tell you about it. Uh, one Sunday when I was about 15 years old, uh, my dad had asked me to help him put in together the slides for the, for the service, the stuff that was going to go up on the screen. Uh, we were sharing in the Lord's Supper that week, uh, and he wanted me uh, to set out the words that we were going to say together, the prayers we were going to pray as a congregation for the Lord's Supper, and, and get them ready on the slides to show in the service. Uh, jump ahead to the actual service itself, uh, and I'm sitting up the back of church, um, helping to run the technology on that particular evening, uh, and we get to the beginning of the Lord's Supper in the service. We flick to the next slide, and Dad stops talking. There's a moment of silence. Clearly something is not right. And Dad took a deep breath, and without making eye contact with anyone, said quietly, but into the microphone, that's not the right version of the Lord's Supper, Richard. Now, look, not that big a deal in one sense, but, you know, I was a 15-year-old boy, and here's my dad standing in front of the whole church service together, a bunch of my friends and their parents and families and other people, um, calling me out, actually, for being an idiot, for, an idiot, for, for doing the wrong thing. Uh, I uh, sat there at the back, as I say, sitting up the back, looking after the, the tech that night, and start to see a couple of people in the congregation awkwardly look over their shoulders at me, and a few other people awkwardly looking at my dad, and even more people awkwardly trying not to look at anyone at all, uh, perhaps even worse, I could see my dad's eyes kind of drop a little bit and his shoulders kind of slump a little bit as it, it just kind of dawned on him what it actually just said and that that probably wasn't a very good or helpful thing. Uh, all of this happened in about 10 seconds and in that uh, time, it didn't take me very long. Uh, my face had gone bright red and I decided I didn't want to be there anymore, so I got up and walked out of the church. Uh, that was an overwhelming experience for me in that moment uh, that can be summed up really in one word, shame. Now, I'd been publicly humiliated, if you like. I'd been ridiculed, called out, exposed in front of a room full of people who I loved and admired uh, by someone who, rightly and understandably, whose approval and love I desperately wanted. 
Uh, now, objectively, not that big a deal. It hasn't scarred me for life. I remember it pretty clearly, as you can see, but Dad and I are good. I love Dad. I should probably say that just in case he happens to listen to the sermon recording later on. Dad, it's fine. We don't have a problem. Uh, and uh, to be honest, it took Dad about two seconds after he was uh, uh, not, no longer at the front of the church to come out the back and find me and make sure that I was okay. It was all good. Nevertheless, that was a particularly kind of formative moment for me in helping me understand what, what that experience of shame is like. Uh, and shame, it turns out, is the issue that's confronting the psalmist in today's psalm. Uh, it's right there in the final two verses. Verse 3, grant us grace, Lord, grant us grace, for we are sorely sated with scorn. Sorely has our being been sated with the contempt of the smug, the scorn of the haughty. Uh, the psalmist, uh, he says, is sorely sated with scorn. And that word scorn in other translations is, is translated as, as shame. It's that kind of idea. And he's sated with it. That is, he's full of it. Uh, imagine uh, the kind of feeling you have after a really big Christmas lunch, that kind of full feeling, but not in a good way. Uh, the smug and the haughty, the arrogant and the superior, they're looking down on the psalmist with contempt, ridiculing and abusing him. And he's had enough, he's fed up, he can't take it anymore. Uh, I wonder if you've had experiences of shame like this. Uh, maybe there's someone in your workplace who kind of has it in for you who does everything they can to tear you down, to call out all the mistakes that you make and make sure that everyone else sees them. Maybe there's someone in your family who uh, kind of just thinks that you're a bit of a failure and really wants to make sure that the rest of the family knows that as well. Uh, maybe you've got friends who somehow have found out something about you that you just kind of hoped no one would ever know. And now they're kind of not wanting to hang out with you as much or in the same way as they used to. Uh, perhaps more likely for most of us, I think, uh, it's not actually this experience of shame necessarily as directed to us by others, but actually the fear that we might experience it. There's stuff actually that we know goes on in our lives and our hearts that we desperately want to keep hidden because we know that if someone knew that thing about us, if they knew that thing that had been done to me, if they knew that desire that I had in my heart, if they knew what I thought about that thing, well, they wouldn't want to spend that much time with me anymore. They'd be done with me. In other words, maybe for you, your experience of shame isn't so much the taunts and contempt of other people, but that little voice inside your own head and heart that says, no, 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 you're wrong, you're nothing, you're small, you're gross. Whatever the shape of this experience for you, shame is something we all face, uh, that feeling that we're not right, that our failings and inadequacies uh, are exposed or at risk of being exposed at any moment. Uh, and that experience of shame has been a uh, common in human experience uh, ever since Adam and Eve sewed a couple of fig leaves together. This is just a common human experience. And so this psalm before us tonight, Psalm 123, this is a real gift to us because here we have a model of how to deal with shame. Uh, and what this psalm does is teaches us three things. We're going to look at each of them in turn. Uh, firstly, we're to look to the Lord who is powerful. Secondly, to look to the Lord who is partisan. Uh, and thirdly, to wait on the Lord who is gracious. So let's start there. Point one, look to the Lord who is powerful. Uh, this is actually the first of these uh, songs of ascent that addresses God directly in prayer. There are other ones that we've read already that talk about praying, that talk about coming before the Lord. But here in this one, from the very get-go, it's, di it's directly addressed to God. Verse one, to you I lift up my eyes, O dweller in the heavens. Uh, now, what's so interesting about that? We, we know as the psalm goes on that, that this, this psalmist is experiencing this, this deep sense of shame, of ridicule, of scorn, of being mocked by those around him. 
And so what's so significant about what he does here in verse 1? Well, what do you do when you're you're feeling ashamed, right? What do you do with your eyes? You look down, right? You try not to look at anyone else at all, not to make eye contact with anyone around. You, You want to be as small as possible and not be noticed. The psalmist is experiencing shame, but what does he do here? He looks up. He looks up to the Lord. He lifts his eyes to the one who dwells in the heavens. What that tells us already is that he knows that there's nowhere else to look for relief from this experience that he's having. It has to be God who he looks to. Why is that the case? Well, that's what verses 1 and 2 tell us. Uh, God, right, uh, God, the psalmist writes uh, here in uh, this uh, first verse, is the dweller in the heavens. Uh, what does that actually mean? What's the, the metaphor here? Uh, well, this isn't actually about where God is, right? This is not a spatial metaphor. It's not saying we're here on earth and God is somewhere up there in the heavens. Uh, this is actually a relational metaphor. Uh, that God is the dweller in the heavens is a claim about how God relates to his world. Uh, The point is that God isn't just another thing amongst all the things in this world. Not even a really big one, actually. He's not just a bigger and more powerful thing. Uh, He's uh, actually, uh, because in that case, he'd still just be a thing, right? A bigger and more powerful thing, still a thing, still just part of this world. But he's not just another thing. He dwells in the heavens. He's beyond this world that we inhabit, and therefore he isn't bound by the same limitations as everything within the world. Uh, Why does that matter? Why does it matter that God isn't just a thing in our world but actually dwells in the heavens, is is beyond the reach of our world in some ways? Uh, It becomes clear if you start to imagine uh, that it really is a literal spatial metaphor. What would that mean? That the one who dwells in the heavens is telling us something about uh, God's location. Uh, C.S. Lewis unpacks this for us a little bit in his uh, characteristically uh, witty way. Uh, Here's what he has to say. Hmm... I've got more words here than I actually want to read, so I'm just going to read it to you, and you're going to have to listen real close, all right? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, In in an article written during the height of the space race, uh, C.S. Lewis says, the Russians, I'm told, report that they have not found God in outer space. Uh, On the other hand, a good many people in many different times and countries claim to have found God or to have been found by God here on Earth. Uh, Looking for God or heaven, he continues, by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or find his birthplace, Stratford, as one of the places. Uh, Shakespeare is, in one sense, present at every moment in every one of his plays, but he's never present in the same way as his characters, Falstaff or Lady Macbeth, uh, nor is he diffused through the play like a gas. Uh, Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying so far. Shakespeare isn't in the story in the way that the characters or the places there are. He's outside it, even though his hand is clear throughout it. Uh, Lewis continues, My point is that if God does exist, he's related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. If God created the universe, he created space-time which is to the universe as the meter is to a poem or the key is to music. To look for him as uh, as one item within the framework which he himself invented is nonsensical. Do you see what uh, Lewis is saying here? God isn't just a thing. You don't discover him by just kind of getting up there higher. No, no, he's beyond our experience of this world. He's the author 
of the universe. And when the psalmist refers to God as a dweller in the heavens, he's saying uh, something quite like this. The God he cries to in his shame is not within the framework of the world that he's invented. He's not to be found within the constraints and the restrictions of our broken world. He isn't related to this world as one object to another, but he's related to this world as an author is related to a play. And see, the point of this is that that's precisely why the psalmist cries out to him. That's why it makes sense to look up, to lift his eyes to God in the midst of his shame and scorn and contempt. The whole point is that God is above this world in the sense that he isn't bound by it. And because he isn't bound by it, he's actually able to do something about it, to intervene in it from outside, to change the parameters. If God was just a bigger thing, even if he was a more central character or something than we are, he might be able to do something useful for us, but he wouldn't be able to change how the story ends. On the other hand, if God is related to this world not as a thing in it, but as the author, then he has the power to put things right. And that's what the psalmist needs. That's what the psalmist wants. He wants his story changed. He wants this experience to be rewritten, and so he appeals to the author. He looks to the Lord who is powerful to actually affect real change. Uh, now, of course, he calls that in the psalm grace. Uh, and, of course, that's exactly what grace is from one angle, isn't it? To have your story rewritten. To have the author himself intervene in your life to start to put things right again. Uh, you see this actually in the Apostle Paul's experience. I mean, his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, some of my favourite verses in all of Scripture, actually. Uh, he writes about pleading with the Lord to remove some hardship from his life. And in response, he, hear the, he hears these words from the Lord Jesus. Paul writes, Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. You see what the grace of God does for Paul, what it does for all of us who are connected to Jesus? It rewrites his story so that his weakness becomes strength, so that his shame becomes glory. That's the grace that the psalmist cries out for, and the only one who can do that is the one who dwells in the heavens, is the author who has the power to intervene and change how the story ends. But that immediately, I think, raises another question. If that's who God is, if Christians are right about that, if the scriptures are right about that, if that's who God is and how he relates to his world, do we really have any reasonable expectation that he's going to want to do this for us, to change our story? Is the author of the universe actually interested in you? Uh, Well, what this psalm tells us is, yes, he is. And not just interested in you, but he's actually partisan. He's on your side. He's going into bat for you. It's not just that he's kind of like, yeah, generally positively disposed towards people. No, he's on your team. And so that's the second thing the psalm teaches us. Point two, look to the God who is partisan. Have a read with me again uh, from verse two. Look, like the eyes of slaves to their masters, like the eyes of a slave girl to her mistress, so are our eyes to the Lord our God until he grants us grace. Uh, The psalmist does something really clever here, actually. He starts with this lofty metaphor about the heavens, and now what he does here in the next verse is kind of brings it down to earth, if you like. 
The psalmist looks to the dweller in the heavens as slaves look to their masters and slave girls to their mistresses. Uh, now, immediately, right, to our modern ears, you go, I don't really want to be a slave. Being a slave is bad. Uh, in fact, this morning in our service, we prayed, as we often do, uh, for uh, the work of International Justice Mission, seeking to end slavery in our lifetime, and we love that organisation and we love their work, and we're 100% on board with them in that. Uh, but of course, uh, in the ancient world, uh, what's uh, spoken here uh, of as slavery is a little different to much of the slavery experienced in the world right now, and actually a different kind of master is involved here. Uh, in the ancient world, each household was basically run by slaves. They did all the work, and in ancient households, that's where you made everything. You didn't go to the shops to buy stuff. Everything was done at home, and it was the slaves who did that work. They did the bidding of their master or mistress, the master or mistress of the household, and in return, they received a living, a place to stay, a place to sleep, uh, safety and protection as members of the household. Uh, what the psalmist is showing us here, uh, and it's really actually pretty astounding when you think about it, when you take a moment to slow down and think about it. What the psalmist is showing us here is that the one who dwells in the heavens has invited us into his own household. The true and living God, the Lord of the whole universe, the one who's beyond our world and outside its restrictions and constraints and who actually writes the story, the author of everything, he's not far off somewhere, he's not distant, he's not up there in the clouds where we can't reach him. No, actually he's near to us in the household that he's made us a part of. You see, the image here isn't of an oppressive, exploitative master who seeks to squeeze every ounce of profit he can get out of those who work for him. Uh, in fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament both have uh, extremely harsh words for masters who treat their slaves like that. And if human masters aren't supposed to treat their slaves like that, then that can't be what the Scriptures are saying about God. Instead, this here is an image of mutual obligation. Uh, the slave, as a member of God's household, is entrusted with the master's affairs, and in turn, the master provides him with safety and security. As one commentator puts it, the, the God appealed to here is not authoritarian and demanding, he is authoritative and protective. Uh, but the psalmist actually makes an even deeper and richer claim here as he presses his case to receive grace from his master. He asks not just for bare bones, not just to be kind of kept alive, no, he asks for grace, he asks for his shame to be taken away. In asking that, right, he assumes that his master will actually care about this experience that he's having. And the reason seems to be that the shame that's being experienced by this slave, by the psalmist, actually reflects on the master as well. The shame of one member of the household brings shame on the whole household. Uh, if you've been watching in the last few years The Crown, you'll have some idea about this. There are all these people who work for the royal household, right? Uh, they're not members of the royal family, but they're there in the palace serving the royal family, doing the work that the royal family asked them to do. Uh, staff in the royal household are, of course, expected to live lives of a certain respectableness because their misdemeanours, their own behaviour, actually reflects on the royal family who they serve. And so when indiscretions inevitably do occur, the royal family are quick to cover them up even to protect the staff whose misdemeanours have been exposed in order to save the household from shame. Uh, of course, you know this uh, even more directly uh, than I do if you're from uh, a family uh, with non-Western heritage. Uh, it's highly likely, if that's you, that you know this idea quite personally. Uh, when you do well, your family tells everyone about it. 
because you doing well brings honour on the whole family. On the other hand, when you mess up, the family tries to hide it away or even worse, perhaps, to ostracise you from your family because it brings shame on the whole family. This is how things work too in the household of God. And so here's what the psalmist does in his situation of shame and it's an incredibly bold move. The psalmist turns to the one who dwells in the heavens, his master, and says, look, are you just going to actually let them get away with this? Are you going to let this shame fall on your household? You're the all-powerful dweller in the heavens. You're the author. You're the only one who can set this right. So you'd better well do it. Because if I fall down in shame, so do you. What the psalmist is teaching us here is that no matter how much shame we have or what kind of shame it is, God cares about it. Why? Because we belong to his household. Because our shame is, in some degree, by some beautiful grace and mercy, our shame is his shame. Now, if you think about it, that could be a really good reason not to lift your eyes to the Lord, right? To go, oh, no, 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 I'm bringing shame on God as well and I don't want to do that. I don't want to see his disapproval, his disappointment. Surely he won't be happy that we're reflecting poorly on him in this moment. Can we really bring our shame like that to God when we know that it reflects on him as well? And can we really expect him to do anything else but reject us out of hand? To join in with the contempt and the scorn of the smug and the haughty? Do we dare actually be as bold as the psalmist here? Of course, we have no right to expect that of God. And that's why the psalmist calls out for grace. For that favour that comes from God on those who don't deserve it because he loves them. Now the psalmist knows that his master is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we know it too, don't we? Isn't that actually the point of the gospel? God loves you so much that he's made your shame his own. He's bound himself to you, making you a member of his household. He's become your master so that he will never let you be put to shame. And so just quickly before we move on to the third point, uh, two just brief things that you might want to keep thinking about a little in the next week or so that I think this means for, for you and for me and for us. Uh, by bringing these two descriptions of God together here, that the heavenly and the household, uh, the psalmist is telling us that the very one who can rewrite your story isn't far off, in fact he's near. And whatever shame you have, he's taken that as his own. Firstly, that's going to mean for us that whatever it is that causes you shame, you actually really can be honest with God about that. You really actually can bring that to your Heavenly Father. He wants you to be free from your shame just as much as you want to be free from it. Uh, and secondly, uh, don't let whatever causes your shame be a reason to distance yourself from others either, especially from us, from your sisters and brothers here in the household of God. Uh, I think we can have a tendency as uh, Christians who, who want to honour the Lord Jesus to actually find it really, really hard to talk about things when we stuff up because we know that we're bringing shame on our spiritual family too, right? It's hard enough to be a Christian in this world in all kinds of ways without making it harder for everyone else by everyone else going, oh, look at that Christian who's screwed up. They must all be dropkicks. And so we find it really hard to talk about this stuff sometimes, to talk about the things that bring us shame. But of course, the point of our community together, brought together in the Lord Jesus, brought together in the one who bears our shame, is that right here with one another, we understand shame. We know it. We know that you've got things to be ashamed of. I've got things to be ashamed of too. We all do. And we know that God has dealt with those things. 
And so this is the community, maybe even the only community, or at least I want to train us how to do this, to be honest about the things that cause us shame with one another so that the rest of us can speak the gospel into it for you so that you can hear God's word of grace and mercy. How do you deal with shame so far? This is what the psalmist has told us. Look to the Lord who is powerful and look to the Lord who is partial, who's on your side, who will go into bat for you. Uh, but there's one more lesson from this psalm, one final piece of the puzzle of how to deal with shame as we walk together with Jesus. Uh, and if you like, it's the piece that kind of gives us the framework and the shape for the whole. Uh, we're to wait on the God who is gracious, point three. Uh, as we've noted throughout uh, this series, these psalms are sent uh, uh, songs for the journey. Right? They're sung by the Jewish pilgrims as they walk uh, on the road to Jerusalem together three times a year to worship in the temple. Uh, and so, because this is the way that they've been sung by God's people in the past, that's how they function for us now as well. Uh, these are songs for helping us on our own journey uh, between when the Lord Jesus first calls us and when he returns to judge the living and the dead, to bring us into new creation together. Uh, it's that in-between time that these psalms are about, when you're on the road still. Uh, this uh, psalm uh, really uh, captures that and picks it up uh, in uh, quite a beautiful way, I think. Uh, have a look at the last uh, clause there of uh, verse 2. Uh, our eyes look to the Lord our God until he grants us grace. Uh, that word until there, a beautiful little word. That word until there tells us that we're still on the journey, right? We're still walking this way. Yes, we've seen grace in the Lord Jesus. Yes, that grace is definitive and for all time, and yet we wait to see that played out in ever-increasing ways and especially at the Lord's return. We're still in the until. We're still on the journey. We're waiting. And as we wait, we're going to experience plenty of shame and scorn and contempt. But this psalm has been hinting all along at what form our waiting should take. We wait on the Lord as slaves and slave girls wait on their master's and mistresses. You see, the road that we walk, the psalmist tells us here, is a road of service. And serving this master is actually a powerful antidote to the shame that we feel. Now, you see, the psalmist cries out of this experience of shame that he has to the Lord, but he sees no shame in referring to himself as a slave of this master. I doubt any of us would ever willingly call ourselves slaves. But this psalmist goes, no, what I need to declare in my shame is that I'm a slave to this God. You see, it's the fact of this master-slave relationship that actually gives him hope that can overcome the shame that he experiences. Whatever scorn and contempt he faces, he knows that he serves the one who dwells in the heavens. He's a member of the royal household. How is waiting on the Lord like this? How is waiting on him as his servants, as his slaves? How is that going to be an antidote to our shame? Uh, let me tell you another story. Uh, for my 21st birthday, uh, a mate of mine surprised me with concert tickets. I'm going to show you who I went to see. Let's flick through here. To my great delight and surprise, he bought us tickets to go and see Bob Dylan. Uh, absolute legend of music, right, in all kinds of ways. Now, uh, Dylan was great. He was even older than he is there by the time I saw him. He was a pretty old dude. He can't really sing anymore, but it didn't matter because it was Bob Dylan and it was incredible. But the thing that I actually remember most about that night was the support act who played beforehand. And before the main act, uh, an Irish band called The Frames played. Here they are. Some of you might know them. Uh, their lead singer is a guy called Glenn Hansard who's you know, been in some films and all that kind of stuff. Uh, now, I don't think I've ever seen a crowd treat a support act 
as badly as that crowd treated the frames that night. Uh, all the way through their opening step, in just about every song, there are a couple of main culprits, but actually a whole bunch of people throughout the crowd, yelling, get off the stage. We don't care about you. We're here to see Dylan. You guys suck. Stop wasting our time. Now, there are many ways you could respond to that, of course, but I think the way that the lead singer of the Frames responded that night was absolutely perfect. Uh, as they were about to launch into their next song, he stopped and addressed the crowd directly. He motioned to the band and said, no, 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 don't start yet. I'm just going to have a moment of speaking to my fans here. Fans. What he said was this. He said, I know we're not who you're here to see tonight. And you know what? You might not like our music very much. But I don't care. You want to know why I don't care? Because we got a call from Bob Dylan saying, I want you to come and play as my support act. How many of you have had that call? Bob Dylan chose us to come on tour with him. Bob Dylan is a fan of our music. Bob Dylan wants us here, so I couldn't care less what you think. Isn't that just kind of perfect? He said, you know what, actually, I know you're here to see the master, but he's who I serve, so I don't care what you think of me. The master has called me into his service. That's a little what it's like for you and I with our God. Whatever shame you're carrying... Your father gives you the dignity of serving in his household. He wants you with him. He wants you working alongside him. And if that's true, then you can say to the smug and the haughty and even to that little voice in your own head and your own heart, my master chose me for this journey, so I couldn't care less what you think. And so that's how we, what, what we do is we wait in the until. That's how we walk this journey, in service to our Lord and Master. We get about serving him in every aspect of our lives. We see everything that we do as an opportunity to bring him glory, to reflect his grace in the world, to say a hallelujah with our lives in praise to our king. We find new dignity and new purpose as we know that everything we do, however significant or mundane, we do it for our Lord as his slave. What's going to enable you to say that, to know that, to believe that that is true? Well, of course, what you need to do is to look to the Lord who dwells in the heavens and see not only a master who gives us a place in his household as his, as his slaves, but also a master who serves us. Now, the psalmist tells us that the author of the universe isn't found within the constraints and restrictions of this world. But, of course, in the Lord Jesus, we see that the Lord has submitted himself to those constraints, to those restrictions. And in doing so, our master has made our shame his own. He's walked this road before us. He's walked this road for us on our behalf. And he's taken our shame on himself. He was exposed for all to see, hung up on a cross, hung out to dry, hung up in public and sorely sated with the scorn and the contempt of the haughty and the smug. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He said, you know what? This shame means nothing to me for the joy that's set before me, the joy of serving my father and of winning for my father slaves who will be his forever, treasured members of his household. And so the master willingly went to a shameful slave's death in order to transform our shame into service and to rewrite our stories by making them part of his own. And so what do we do? Well, we wait on the one who's granted us grace until he grants it to us again and again and again and again. 
until he reached the end of the journey and hear him say, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master. This is what it looks like for us to walk the journey, to wait on this Lord of grace. Amen.